Welcome to the Imposters Part 2 Consumer and Professional Fraud webinar today. It's our TMIT Global Research Testbed Program. I'm Dr. Charles Denham. I am your uh, uh, speaker today and, I'm, and uh, coordinator. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, this is our 208th webinar, September 21st. Uh, please forgive the noise in the background, construction going on in the next building. Uh, we will be covering Imposters Part 2, Consumer and Professional Fraud. We'll be addressing medical identity theft, medical record contamination, professional fraud. We'll touch on conflict of interest and financial fraud in, and reference uh, future programs uh, that we'll through which we'll deliver that. Uh, we are addressing awareness, accountability, ability, and action. We'd like to remind you that this is part of our series on workplace violence and fraud, uh, which we've been undertaking uh, over the last uh, months, uh, addressing a number of areas of workplace violence that are absolutely critical to our universities, our medical centers, and our frontline institutions. I'd like to draw your attention to our July webinar, which was Imposters Part One, Emerging Threats to Safety, when we covered some really fascinated, fascinating uh, areas regarding imposters as caregivers uh, and, it, uh, and also uh, professional uh, uh, and uh, academic fraud. For those of you that are with us for your first time, we'd like to draw your attention to go to www.safetyleaders.org, where you can download the slides. For those of you that are on, audi on Audible with us uh, and on podcasts, you may go there to um, uh, download additional resources uh, should you want to go back and cover what, we're, what you're hearing about. What I'd like to do is just draw your attention to our CARE University, which is not an affiliate, not an, a, a, an accredited university, but CARE University is our learning management system. And our process is really to establish communities of practice, of which this is one, and you are a part of the, our program in safety. And what we do is we develop car, our course and curriculum R&D, our research and development, in order to identify the competencies that are absolutely critical. And we do a lot of competency testing as a result of passing on knowledge and skills. And then the goal is for certain programs to develop certifications and, and incentives uh, to help those that would like to uh, to to um, learn these skills in safety and quality. Uh, we work very closely with the American College of Surgeons and we are uh, trainers for the Stop the Bleed program and also the American Heart Association uh, for CPR and AED. And this is part of our MedTAC program, which we'll cover another time. That's our medical tactical certification program, a bystander rescue care program. So today I'd just like to highlight the fact that we'll have a number of our speakers that are regular speakers in workplace violence. Uh, Jennifer Dingman is our voice of the patient. Uh, uh, today we'll hear uh, a, a quite a lengthy and comprehensive uh, review of fraud by John Nance, uh, who is both a JD and uh, a former uh, captain with uh, Alaskan Airlines and as well an aviation safety and quality safety uh, leader. Uh, we'll also hear from Chief William Adcox, who is one of our uh, great leaders and a pathfinder in, in safety science. Uh, and for the extended versions, when you go on the web, you'll see our other leaders, David Morris is both a PhD and a JD, a forensic psychologist. 
uh, Randy Steiner, who is the emergency response leader at the University of California, Irvine, and Rhodes, the co-founder of JetBlue, formerly the head of HR for the uh, Southwest Airlines, and Dr. Casey Clements, who's the head of emergency medicine, uh, who is both a, a PhD and an MD uh, at, the, at the Mayo Clinic, and our clinical leader, Dr. Gregory Boats, who is a full professor of critical care and anesthesia at MD Anderson, as well as a, um, an adjunct full professor at Stanford Medical School. Uh, the first thing that we always do in these programs, and for those of you, views, for those of you that are joining us, uh, we would like to invite Jennifer Dingman to um, deliver the voice of the patient so that we can really uh, focus on the families we serve and those who serve. And so we'll hear from Jenny. Jenny is the founder of Pulse, which is a focused uh, program on patient safety. Uh, she's also been a long-standing TMIT patient advocate. She's a, a na she's been a national speaker, uh, an, a published author in safety, and she was a contributor to our program with the National Quality Forum. Uh, Jenny, please uh, open us. Thank you for your kind introduction, Dr. Denham. Looking forward to today's program about identity theft. It's very, very important that we protect ourselves in these days of high crimes. I wanna thank everyone for being here today. And again, urge everyone to please share the recordings with your colleagues, families, and friends. I'll hand it back over to you, Dr. So thank you, Jenny. And Jenny has just been a, a, a terrific advocate of patient safety and quality. Um, for those of you on the podcast, we uh, have on our screen uh, our addresses for social media and ways to reach us. We also want to address uh, our purpose, mission, and values. Our purpose is that we will measure our success by how we protect and enrich the lives of families, patients, and caregivers our mission is to accelerate performance solutions that save lives, save money, and create value in the communities we serve and the ventures we undertake. And our core values spell I care, integrity, compassion, accountability, reliability, and entrepreneurship. And although uh, we try to live them every day, um, we are as imperfect as everyone. And we, uh, although we do our best to live those core values in everything we do. We also have on our slide 13, and for those on the, on the podcast, none of our speakers have anything to disclose, and we do not receive uh, funding, direct, indirect, or affiliated financial support. Uh, we have never received it uh, for uh, from healthcare, pharmaceutical, or device companies for this program. So this program is entirely underwritten by philanthropy, and it's never received. We have never received uh, funding for it. Um, we also want to address the fact that a lot of our work comes from a 1,000 worker essential worker study that we began during the COVID crisis and have continued with, focused on safety, and that would be readiness, response, rescue, recovery, and resilience. We studied family units, not only uh, nuclear families, but, uh, but offsite families such as college students on campuses and been very enlightening to us. As I said, uh, we focus on the processes of readiness for crises and for health issues, how to respond to them with bystander rescue care, how to rescue those that are very seriously uh, in trouble, recovery after the rescue, and then resilience, which is target hardening uh, or uh, creating a resilience to these emergencies. Our TMIT Global Research Testbed is comprised of uh, 
3,100 hospitals and 3,000 communities. We've had a pool of subject matter experts that has grown over 39 years to be 500. We will have our 40th anniversary this year. Um, and we'd just like to address the fact that uh, we uh, address uh, a lot of the critical uh, issues uh, uh, of all cause harm. And I'll play a short videotape regarding the to this topic that we share with uh, major universities and medical centers. We use this iceberg graphic to describe the all-cause threats to medical centers and universities. Fraud is a critical issue. Workplace violence by students, staff, or outsiders is just the tip of the iceberg. The all-cause harm for those you serve and those who serve ranges from insider threats and typical crime to failure to rescue those with common medical emergencies and preventable accidents to suicide and R&D and faculty ethics issues. For instance, insider threats are challenging every higher ed organization. However, there's a lot more to the job than sorting out the howlers and the hunters who become shooters. Non-physical workplace violence is becoming a major force and a new universe of liability. Terrorism, although rare, is real and demanding attention. Be ready. And espionage is growing, be it criminal, nation state, or economic. It's a costly reality, robbing our leading R&D organizations. Sabotage, once a myth, is also becoming a reality in the virtual realm, and it may even start to impact our physical world. Theft of intellectual property and financial theft, including ransomware, are continuous threat issues that are rarely publicized, yet often profoundly damaging and nationally out of control. And cyber threats, be they unintentional, given our porous IT systems, or intentional cyber breach, are becoming a leading cause of unbudgeted damage and cost. So we use this, uh, this graphic uh, to show so much of this is under the waterline in our organizations. Well, where did this all come from? Uh, we created an emerging threats community of practice uh, in 2018. Uh, we focused on the 30 issues that were really keeping leaders up at night. And these are both for medical centers as well as higher education. And graphically, for those of you that are on our podcast, we're graphically displaying them. And we know that inside and outside threats can be reduced, but they can't be reduced to zero. And so today we're discussing uh, a few of these, and we know that insider threats uh, can be uh, in a number of areas, including workplace violence, domestic terrorism, violent acts against leadership, intentional harm, financial harm to patients, defamation and unfair press, and preventable death and severe injury. So there are a number of these issues that are absolutely critical. And imposters, our topic today, act in many of those locations, and that's why it's so critically important that we cover this as part of our workplace violence series. Now, uh, we undertook a review of the major areas of fraud uh, in October 21st of 2021. There's a link there for those of you that are on the podcast, and we highly encourage you to take a look at these because fraud is critical in healthcare, and it really, it really translates or it really extends to our institutions of higher learning. So a brief description of uh, fraud is, is kind of important here, and 
that is that fraud is the intentional deception to secure unfair or unlawful gain or deprive a victim of a legal right. Fraud can violate civil law. Um, that is to say, fraud victims may sue the fraud perpetrator to avoid the fraud and recover monetary compensation, or they can be criminal. A fraud perpetrator may be prosecuted and imprisoned by governmental authorities, or it may cause no loss of money, property, or legal right, but still be an element of another of other civil or criminal wrongs. And we're really seeing these RICO uh, statutes being addressed uh, in our news these days, which is really pretty uh, pretty interesting. We've studied RICO very closely as they relate to patient safety and quality issues. Now, today we're going to be covering um, a, a some of what you see on the screen for those of you that are not on the podcast. We're going to be covering a sham peer review, whistleblower retaliation, some cybercrime, uh, insurer fraud, uh, and some of the, uh, the key issues that are occurring there. So for today, let's start with the first topic, medical identity theft and, medi and medical uh, contamination. We have a short uh, series of video clips that will help us kind of focus on some of the really amazing things that are going on. And a number of these sources uh, we've identified from, uh, uh, from a number of uh, both government but also from uh, from the press, and mainly many of them from the government. So let's take a look at uh, at what we need to know about there. My name is Irma. I live in Glencoe, Arkansas. I got a call one evening. A man told me I was approved for a back brace through Medicare. All he needed was my uh, numbers and I gave you my Medicare number and my debit card number. Unfortunately, scams like this happen quite often. Many people just like you become victims of medical identity theft every day. But you have the power to detect these crimes and protect yourself from criminals. Don't respond to unsolicited requests for your Medicare number or other personal information. The thieves can be very persistent and persuasive. Review your medical bill and statements for services or equipment you haven't received. And if you think something suspicious has occurred, report it immediately. Together, we can fight medical identity theft. Imagine being rushed to the hospital with a serious injury only to learn someone else already had a major surgery on your dime and the thief used your medical identity in another state. That is what happened to one woman who is now sharing her story about how she became the victim of medical identity theft. She spoke with News 4 Jax investigator Tark Miner, who is looking into this fast-growing national crime trend. Tark, Tom, more than 2 million Americans had their identity stolen just last year by people desperate for medical treatment because they don't have health care themselves. And in the case of a Palm Coast woman, a stranger with diabetes had her leg amputated using her medical information. I mean, obviously, I have two functioning legs, so how could I have had a leg amputated? And she said, well, you had your leg amputated. And I said, no, I, I don't think so. I'm a soccer referee. I, I ride horses. I compete with dogs. Uh, no, I, I have two legs. And she's like, well, according to our records, you had surgery. There's no denying that this woman we're calling Lisa has both of her legs. But she still had a hard time convincing her insurance company that someone stole her medical identity. The person had their leg amputated because of diabetes. 
I am not a diabetic. Lisa says her insurance company tried to charge her more than a quarter of a million dollars in bills associated with the leg amputation. It happened six weeks after she had surgery on her shoulder. She later learned her medical identity had been used in four states. Well, there were the big hospital bills and all the associated physical therapy, uh, prosthesis, uh, medications, um, nursing. At one point, there was nursing. There was a home where this nurse was going to, but of course, nobody was able to trace it back. You don't get a lot of cooperation with trying to solve this problem. Lisa suspects her medical information was stolen by an employee of the hospital where she had her shoulder surgery and then sold on an underground market to someone desperate for health care. It's hell. Um, and I think the thing that scares me the worst that is anything happened to me, that it wouldn't be my medical information. Let's say, for instance, you were involved in an auto accident and in need of an emergency blood transfusion, but the blood type that the doctor's office has isn't yours. It's the thief's. It's just another example of the deadly dangers of medical ID theft because getting the wrong type of blood can kill you. It's a uh, life and death for some people. Neil Villacorta-Buer is a privacy and security officer for Family Care Partners in Jacksonville, a practice that specializes in pediatrics, internal medicine, and keeping patients' medical information safe. He says too often, smaller medical care providers don't have adequate training or technology to combat cyber criminals who are selling a person's medical identity for profit. Well, the medical industry really lags behind the financial industry and a lot of other sectors in protecting that information. When you think of all the little mom and pop you know, um, uh, medical practices, most of them can't afford a real security team or a security official. So they'll have computers there that are unsecured, not password protected, and also a lot of the data is not encrypted. To protect your medical identity, security experts warn against tweeting or posting Facebook updates about your medical issue or a family member's surgery. That information could make you more of a target, especially if you have good health insurance. When you fill out paperwork in a doctor's office, only fill out the last four digits of your social security number. Check your explanations of benefits or Medicare summary on a quarterly basis and freeze your child's credit until they turn 16 years old. Something to remember. As healthcare providers convert to digital records, security experts say patients become more vulnerable to external data breaches. And I still have negative things on my credit reports that have cost me money in my mortgage, has cost me money in my car loans, cost me money in my insurance. What's very interesting is that the Medical Identity Fraud Alliance says one in four thefts are committed by family members of the victim. And interesting enough, in a world of cyber attacks and security breaches, medical identities are 50 times more valuable to these thieves than financial identities. That is just chilling, Tarek. What about Lisa's medical identity fraud case? Was anyone ever arrested? The person who stole her identity has never been caught. And nowadays, her insurance company requires her to have all of her medical claim paperwork notarized before she can get them to cover her doctor visits or any procedures, any small procedures. She has to go to a notary to get that oh done. Oh my gosh, what a hassle. So this is just a frightening, frightening situation and much bigger than we even thought until we had undertaken uh, the review of this. And so we highly recommend that uh, you show these uh, to your family uh, so that you can kind of really understand uh, what's going on. Now, the, the one concept that most people don't understand is synthetic med medical identity theft, 
or what's called the Frankenstein um, uh, uh, issue, which is just uh, absolutely, uh, absolutely uh, fascinating. Uh, and uh, this is uh, this is something where uh, uh, people are actually uh, synthesizing uh, the records uh, for uh, organizations and also uh, the deep fake uh, the deep fake um, uh, threats that uh, that are there. So let me uh, go ahead and uh, and I'll I'll put that on for you. Synthetic identity fraud, or what some call Frankenstein identity theft, is reported to be the fastest growing type of financial crime. The Federal Reserve sought to develop an industry-recommended definition to help identification and mitigation of the harm. Leading fraud experts defined it as the use of a combination of personally identifiable information to fabricate a person or entity in order to commit a dishonest act for personal or financial gain. Every single family should be aware of this potential risk. Well, identity fraud has been around for centuries, but the Internet is giving one type of ID theft a boost by giving fraudsters a way to cherry pick info from different people, creating something called Frankenstein fraud. Fox Bye Bye Team's Dana Fowl is here to explain what this is, Dana. Frankenstein fraud. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's because identity thieves are creating a whole new person. They're stealing bits and pieces from a few folks at once, and this new synthetic identity is a fast growing trend. Federal Reserve Bank's website offers this perfect example. Take a look at that. Can't be clearer. They illustrate here how fraudsters pick a fictitious name with a stolen social security number and made up date of birth, adding in new contact information. And there you have it. Frankenstein, the newly created identity. Again, this is a made up person, so the bad guys try to make them seem more real by using this identity to apply for you know, a phone number, credit card, and a whole lot more. Now, this synthetic person has a credit history because they've done all that, but it gets even deeper. Sometimes the fraudster gets a bunch of these Frankensteins, creates a shell company, and then reports all of these fake identities to credit reporting agencies so they can get good credit, and then they steal big money down the road. Here's the most vulnerable population, and it is your children. A security blog reports that 86% of parents don't monitor their children's credit reports. If a child has given their social security number up to social media, make sure you tell them not to do that. But even at the doctor's office or at school, then they are vulnerable. And two out of three parents didn't even know this was an issue. But any account that's rarely used is at risk for ID theft. And that means children, the elderly, and the deceased. Mm. Okay, so don't you have to give your child's social security number? You know, you out? don't. And okay. I've tried not to, and sometimes I get pushback. But according to the federal government, schools can ask for it, and you can say no to schools. Healthcare providers can ask for it, and you can, you know, say no, but they can decline to treat you. Hmm. Uh, I've tried it in a couple of instances and sometimes I just left it blank yeah. and it hasn't been caught. Well, it's always places you're like, why do they need like the dentist office, you know, right. that, that's asking for that or yeah, just like I, rant. Like, it, I never it, understand half of that. Like why certain people need to know what I do for a living and what my husband does. Right, right. Like, <laughs> Level of education, uh, right? Yeah, like just I'm random like, things, yeah, but like I'm serious like, stuff like social security numbers. Yeah, like, you're like, I just want to return some towels. <laughs> right, that's all I want to do. Like, what, just... what's all this? <laughs> There's a few questions we're going to have to ask you first, Dana. I mean, it's yeah. crazy. Maybe we should start pushing back and saying, you don't need this. Yeah. 
Good to know that we can. In fact, let's band you know? together and do this. Let's push back. <laughs> let's do it. We can do this together. Very important topic, yeah. though, so I'm glad that I think it is, and uh, it, it's made me realize I need to check my kids' credit report. Everybody has either a social security number or other type of information that is has been taken and is now being sold on uh, underground markets. With every click, you may be taking a risk. Identity theft is increasing and adapting, along with the amount of people committing crimes. According to the Federal Trade Commission, over 85% of identity theft is synthetic. Our, our regulators, our, our law enforcement personnel are calling it the Frankenstein fraud. Frankenstein fraud. What is it? It's a term for fraudsters stealing and mixing various people's information to create an identity of someone who doesn't exist. It's also known as synthetic identity fraud, and children are some of the main targets. For example, it could be an infant's social security number paired with the name of a person in a nursing home and the address of someone who's deceased. The thief puts it all together to create a real identity of a synthetic person. Aaron O'Loughlin with the Association of Certified Financial Crime Specialists says criminals are increasingly targeting children's social security numbers. Their social security number is just so raw. And these fraudsters love it because they don't get a whole lot of attention when you use it. Many parents are unaware crimes like this even exist. Have you ever heard of Frankenstein fraud? No. According to security.org, the majority of parents have never checked their children's credit report. Amanda's children are three and eight. But I'm like, okay, so new thing to worry about. <laughs> Got it. Lance Hayden teaches about cybersecurity and privacy at the University of Texas. He says the idea behind Frankenstein fraud has been around for centuries. Every new mass communication technology that comes out, um, you get hackers and thieves and fraudsters and people coming in trying to take advantage of it. It happened with the telegraph, it happened with the telephone, it happened with the internet. The bottom line is our information sells. Passports go for about a thousand dollars. Social security numbers, ironically enough, I think the last status I saw, they go for about a buck. The challenge in enforcing cybersecurity and privacy laws is tracking everything down. There's so much of this crime that they have to investigate you know, it's not that they don't care and it's not that they don't want to do something about it, but where do you go from there? One place you can report it is the Better Business Bureau. Uh, across Texas last year, we only received about 50 reports of uh, ID thefts, and some of that was tied to synthetic ID thefts. Do you think that this is being underreported in Texas just because people are having a hard time pinpointing it? Yes, definitely. That's that's a big cause right there. Regional Before, Director uh, Jason Mesa says prevention is key. Is there a way to operate that's 100% safe online. Well, I wish I had the ultimate uh, tool to tell everybody, but I guess the best method, again, is to play the best defense. There are simple ways to strengthen your family's defense against Frankenstein fraud. Establish a credit freeze, create different complex passwords for your accounts, and conduct free credit reports every year. The experts hope that parents will follow these tips to armor their children's data. The more aware, um, people are of this issue, I think taking those steps makes a lot of sense. This is a cybersecurity information sheet that was recently circulated among leaders of universities and medical centers. Threats from synthetic media, such as deepfakes, 
present a growing challenge for all users of modern technology and communications, including national security systems, the Department of Defense, the Defense Industrial Base, and national critical infrastructure owners and operators. As with many technologies, synthetic media techniques can be used for both positive and malicious purposes. Organizations and their employees may be vulnerable to deep fake tradecraft and techniques which may include fake online accounts used in social engineering attempts, fraudulent text and voice messages used to avoid technical defenses, faked videos used to spread disinformation, and other techniques. I am not Morgan Freeman, and what you see is not real. Well, at least in contemporary terms, it is not. What if I were to tell you that I am not even a human being? Would you believe me? What is your perception of reality? Is it the ability to capture, process, and make sense of the information our senses receive? If you can see, hear, taste, or smell something, does that make it real? Or is it simply the ability to feel? I would like to welcome you to the era of synthetic reality. Now, what do you see? So the deep fake uh, issue is absolutely critical and the notification uh, that we received regarding these issues uh, uh, actually came from uh, our partners in law enforcement regarding this issue being absolutely critical. So as we think about this and we go forward, it's another component of the uh, of uh, the identity theft issues. So one of the critical this is the, these are the critical takeaways that we've taken from uh, this this uh, this issue. Uh, first, don't don't respond to uh, unsolicited uh, unsolicited requests for Medicare or ID information. Review all medical bills and statements for equipment you have not received. If you think something suspicious, report it immediately. Your medical information may be sold on the internet, and we have to make sure seniors understand that and that our children's information may be sold on the internet. Maintain a set of your medical records you can provide in an emergency. Do not post any information about health issues on social media because they'll, they'll use that to synthesize a new identity using a number of elements, which we'll share in a bit. Uh, check your health insurance status quarterly. Check explanation of benefits called EOBs, those of us in healthcare know that, um, and uh, Medicare summaries. Uh, freeze your child's credit until they are 16 years of age. Contaminated medical records can impact your credit for sure. Uh, it's shocking to find that one out of four medical identity thefts are by family members of the victim. Your medical identity can be worth 50 times more valuable than your financial identity. The term Frankenstein fraud or synthetic identity is when they take uh, the social security and change the age and create actually a whole new identity of a person using elements of your identity. 85% of identity theft is this kind of synthetic identity and of uh, and then uh, use the uh, to providers provide your last four digits of your social security numbers uh, 
and that's absolutely critical so that they don't have the, the whole uh, social security number. Establish a credit freeze if you wish. Use complex passwords for accounts and conduct the free credit uh, reports yearly. These are all absolutely critical. Uh, now, let's talk about professional fraud. Uh, and that unfortunately can occur uh, in um, a, a number of ways. And we've uh, actually created a, uh, a video uh, uh, regarding the pro a program that we've started uh, some time ago uh, to focus on the, the, those that, could, that should be, uh, uh, should not uh, be subject to uh, a, a lot of terrible things. And this is, uh, these are the, um, that this is built on the Innocence Project. So I'll share this, uh, uh, I'll share this uh, uh, with you. The blessing and tremendous power of the internet is that it has made information instant, permanent, searchable, and global. However, our scandal-hungry society has no check and balance for the truth. The potential for harm to honest people and institutions by those who are dishonest is enormous and growing. The coronavirus crisis has intensified the damage to public health officials, professional caregivers, patients, and their families. We have seen this as a growing trend over the entire span of the COVID pandemic. And there are no signs of the damage diminishing, even when the surges are smaller. Weaponized false narratives of misinformation, when false information is shared but no harm is meant, disinformation, when false information is knowingly shared to cause harm, and malinformation, when genuine information is shared to cause harm, often by moving information designed to stay in private into the public sphere, can all be micro-targeted to individuals and institutions. This personalized propaganda can be brought to scale immediately, destroying careers, families, and organizations who are defenseless against such speed and reach. Some organizations set on protecting their assets at all costs will sick ambitious prosecutors and even their own defense attorneys on vulnerable caregivers and patients. They fuel the fires of scandal by orchestrated social and professional media blitz smear campaigns. Their goal with these narratives is to win in the court of public opinion during negotiations, even before trials. Gag orders are regular components of plaintiff settlements. They allow organizations to hang their caregivers out to dry. This often occurs in the cases where caregivers are criminally prosecuted. The advent of information disorder machines that use artificial intelligence and machine learning to automate the process of defamation represent a serious and emerging threat. An emerging threat to individuals and institutions from product competitors to litigants, employers, and even nation states as we've seen with the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. This Healthcare Innocence Project is a program inspired by the Innocence Project that has secured the liberty of hundreds of innocent people over more than 25 years. Two lawyers and a team of law students used the power of a new technology at that time, which was DNA science, to prove that people who had been wrongfully convicted were innocent. We stand on the shoulders of their success by using the power of a new technology, electronic records, patient records, digital employment documentation, and careful investigative journalism. The new digital DNA of such records provides real fingerprints of evidence that can battle failure to rescue, failure to rescue of reputations and harm to the lives of honest people.
Such evidence can lead to new accountability and consequences for false whistleblowers and predators on the web. Our goal is to protect patients, caregivers, academics, researchers, and patient advocates improperly accused of wrongdoing. Whether it is a caregiver who is characterized as a bad apple after a medical error, when the real source of harm is from the system's faults and failures of the organization, faults and failures of the apple barrel itself, or sham peer review or sham human resources reviews of caregivers to discredit them for business purposes, or patients and their families who are vilified by a defense team to discredit them in malpractice settlement negotiations, or a whistleblower who is met with retaliation or retribution for trying to protect patients, or the professionally lethal smear campaigns by competitors propelled over the web, Digital technologies verifying documentation tied to facts, timelines, and eyewitness accounts can reverse the false narrative, just as DNA testing has in our courts. Today's digital technologies have provided a new means of exposing bad faith actors. Their behaviors leave verifiable fingerprints in the code and internet archives. We are helping organizations take the high road of bringing transparency and accountability to their healthcare leadership teams. Those who want to update their codes of conduct for conflicts of interest, following the lead of the best organizations who have proven they work. Developing publication integrity and ethics checklists to be used by authors and academic center leaders when they prepare publications. And employing industry accepted just culture protocols that can be used after serious adverse events and medical accidents. Our approach is to build a community of practice, starting with frontline nurses, caregivers, researchers, and healthcare leaders who will develop, refine, and test the value of case studies and evidence-based concepts, tools, and resources that can drive real change. The rapid evolution of the Me Too movement and college admissions scandals have expanded the scope of racketeering. The potential for civil racketeering lawsuits in healthcare by those harmed and the rise of academic defamation and medical mobbing are adding fuel to the fires of change. We believe that the defamation and libel laws must be modernized to provide protection to the honest patients, caregivers, academics, researchers, and advocates through checks and balances that provide significant consequences to the dishonest who seek to cause harm. We are building a library of case studies and stories with the leaders of our best healthcare organizations through a structured research collaboration on these and a carefully researched panel of critical emerging threats. This will lead to investigative white papers and documentaries, the rescue of careers, the development of best practices, and publication of peer-reviewed articles. The goal is to make the truth in media the best defensive weapon we can and to create accountability for the dishonest and reckless who seek to do harm to others so that they will pay the price of public and personal consequences as the penalties for their behavior. Such behavior is a clear and present danger to our healthcare system. Our vision is to make sure we protect those who serve and those they serve. Join us in this cause. We need you and your stories. So we launched this program uh, back before COVID and COVID uh, delayed uh, to some degree uh, um, the activity. And now we're very active in getting uh, the work done and moving forward. Uh, we'd like to draw your attention to a webinar that we did regarding professional fraud uh, with um, Cynthia Shapiro, who wrote the book Corporate Confidential, uh, which was absolutely critical. She 
covers a number of the issues that you'll hear about here in just a moment from uh, an anonymous caregiver who's uh, in my book a real champion a real hero who has gone to bat in her organization or his organization I'm not going to identify uh, a she or a he uh, uh, or uh, any pronoun because uh, this person that you will hear from now uh, is currently at an organization and weathered the storm of a lot of professional fraud uh, because this person really focused on their patients. And so uh, we'll hear from this, uh, what I, who I think was a, is a terrific hero uh, on, um, on a number of these issues. And so we'll share this with you. Uh, this person will remain anonymous and continues to work in healthcare and champion the causes that are so critical to all of us. And that's the, the sacred trust of our patients. So we'd like to thank you so much as a caregiver dedicated to uh, your community. Uh, you're anonymous today, so you can protect your organization, uh, the ecosystem there, uh, your colleagues, uh, patients and families and victims of medical error. And we just want to thank you for your heroism and your desire to protect uh, all of those constituents. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Chuck, for having me. Listen, what I'd like to do is ask you, what did it feel like after a, not after a, a, a patient safety incident uh, to not have the physician there at a root cause analysis to help analyze what happened? It, it's kind of blindsiding, Chuck, to say the least. Um, something I was not trained or prepared to handle. Um, the, the ground kind of felt like it had been taken out from underneath me. And when you found out that this, uh, that the caregiver uh, was impaired and that the organization had been notified of the impairment uh, uh, during that time period, what did that feel like? Um, honestly, Chuck, it felt, um, I, I felt like I was in a time zone. <laughs> that, uh, again, I just was not trained to, or prepared to handle um, it was, I felt very alone, um, especially when my organization, I, I believed uh, at the time, should have been um, beside me and supportive, um, but I found that to be quite the opposite. So we've talked about the fact that HR in some organizations, not all, can be weaponized against their own caregivers when there's potential liability. Uh, what did it feel like to have the organization start to create documentation that made you look bad? Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I felt robbed, uh, really, Chuck. Not only did I, uh, I feel like I had done everything in my power, everything within my scope of practice to save a patient, I, I felt like the organization, well, they should know better. And... Um, now, in hindsight, and, and then many years later, I I think these are sometimes just good people gone um, mis misled um, by by some bad apples in the organization, and and it's kind of sad to to know that that's very prevalent in our healthcare um, entities. And just to clarify things a little more specifically and still keep your case anonymous, 
the organization actually reached out to a prior supervisor and those previously who you had reported to and asked them to invent and create fictitious reviews. Is that correct? And what did that feel like? Um, they did. Um, again, I, I felt um, I felt like I'd been betrayed <laughs> by a loved one. Really, um, I I were at the time I had worked there well into it had been well over five six years. I, you know, most most people that work in healthcare that's kind of your home away from home, and so I, I felt like I was going through a. Um, and I was just going to be a divorce from from um, a place where I love to work, and so yeah, I completely felt betrayed, and like I said before, um, it's just shocked, blindsided, um, and you know, you're trying to at the time process what has just happened, which is traumatic in itself, and now you have, um, you know, just kind of added fuel to the fire, and it just. It was so confusing, just so confusing. I just couldn't believe this is this is what what goes on. Um, but um, I did, unfortunately. And to clarify even more, uh, there there appeared to be. Is this true? There was an active effort to generate documentation that would distract or actually be fictitional to recharacterize what happened in terms of the root cause analysis and then uh, the personal file records uh, about mm -hmm. you. Is, mm -hmm. that, is that true? Yes, and, and to this day, I think um, I, I still kind of see or hear through the grapevine that this is continuing. Um, there are, um, people being surprised by things being put in their HR file, um, things that they don't know about. Um, and so, yeah, it's very, you lose trust. And um, I think that's a valuable um, trait to have when you work for an organization that you feel is trying to serve uh, your community. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think um, Fortunately, at the time, I had a director that uh, had a moral compass, and she refused to write a document. However, one still happened to surface, and unfortunately, she got scared and um, had a pro her husband was a provider that worked there, and that that kind of with that kind of stopped her from from pursuing. Um, any other way to kind of help my my course of action and so i and, and now i understand that right people are people are scared and they don't want to lose their jobs and their livelihoods depend on on it but i still believe that um if more than one stands up then maybe we can change the system understood so um are you if you were to advise someone else and this started to happen, uh, do, would you, do you wish that you would have engaged an attorney earlier in the process uh, than when you did? And what prompted you to do it? I, I, I knew deep down that there had been some type of a, uh, maybe not criminal, but definitely civil um, liability here. And so um, I, I felt like I actually, and honestly, when I look back, I think I, I, I contacted the attorney at the right time. Um, as, as soon as it happens, it's crucial. Um, events kind of get fuzzy off the time. And so 
um, yes, definitely. I would advise people to pursue um, legal action um, and legal counsel, especially um, with dealing with HRs because they have attorneys uh, pulling strings um, um, behind the behind the scenes there, um, coordinating what the HR department should and shouldn't be doing. So yes, I definitely would advise legal counsel as soon as possible. And I know that uh, we've experienced this in the many cases we've seen and in your case, you almost have to educate local attorneys because there are very few, even healthcare attorneys that understand how hospitals operate unless they've worked in them. Is that a fair statement? Yes. I. Um especially if you're working rural, right? Uh, your resources seem to dwindle. Um, however, I will say that since this event, um, uh, especially the attorney I, I hired at the time was um, very green in the, in the area of healthcare and, and not so much now. <laughs> so that, that's kind of, it's kind of bored a lot of, um, it's, um, uh, she's she's self-learned now with uh, health healthcare issues because it, it definitely is a different arena when it, um, compared to to other um, employment employment uh, entities. Chuck. An another uh, question and another big aha for ourselves in many cases and in your case was the lack of helpfulness of professional organizations. We are not gonna say whether you're a nurse or a doctor or a PT or a, a nurse anesthetist. We're just going to say um, that you did reach out to professional organizations and in every case we've run into, they've, they've offered very little help. Is that a fair statement? I, I, I do, I think it's become unfortunately very political uh, for some reason or another. Um, I, 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 this was a no-brainer that I would get help um, from this organization that that stood for patient safety, and unfortunately, yeah, there was there was no help to be had there. And and now that you've learned about these issues of patient safety, if you were on the board of directors of a hospital. Um, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, how engaged would you be in quality and safety? Oh, I think by far, um, uh, 10 being the most engaged, that would be definitely 10. Probably an 11, huh? Yeah, right. If, uh, if I could, um, unfortunately, for some reason, they're not allowed to be, um, current employees of a hospital. Um, at least some of the bylaws are set up that way. Um, I, I think you definitely should be able to be a, a part of a board as a nurse, even if you are hired. Uh, um, it just needs to be stipulated somewhere in the bylaws that there are checks and balances, correct? Um, but again, if you don't have the right people or the right caliber people, um, you know, um, ensuring those checks and balances, then it's, it's not going to work. So as we look at this imposter concept uh, and people perhaps acting as if they are uh, your advocate and not, and we've mm -hmm. seen that in the HR department, uh, but, we, but we've also seen um, many people having to generate um, dishonest or inaccurate paperwork because their bosses are requiring it 
and they're worried about their own livelihood and their own jobs. But I, I think you've now, the time we've known you, you've held no malice for the people that were forced to generate documents to hurt you. Um, well, I, I think it took some time for me to get to that point. I had, at first was very angry and I had to go through almost a grieving process to get to the place I am now. But yeah, I think, you know, unfortunately, we all go in self-preservation mode in situations where there's a, a traumatic event. Um, it's human nature. But um, I think it's crucial that we take a good, long, hard look at ourselves and, and decide who we're going to be in that moment, especially when we ask by someone in a powerful position to do the wrong thing um, out of protection for um, either ourselves or the entity. Um, yeah, the, uh, there's been many a story written and a movie made about this, this very issue. And, and I think when people stand up, um, it's unfortunately become less less um, common for people to do the right thing. So yeah, I, 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 I think it's sad. <laughs> and I don't know if this is something that, that's that's taught or people are just born with with moral courage, but um, I, I do not regret standing up for my patient to this day, even though it brought me a lot of um, sorrow, uh, a lot of, uh, I, I went through, I was very lonely. And to this day, I know I've kind of suffered um, some progression within my career, but um, a lot of people have turned over since then. And I'm now starting to see a little bit of trajectory. So. Um, but again, I didn't do it for anything other than my patient. So uh, in the cases, and again, we don't want to just, we want to protect your anonymity, your organization, the people that are there and the patients and families. But um, we do know that a majority of these cases that moved to malpractice as yours did, uh, that the gag order pr protects the organization from people knowing what happened and also uh, prevents the families from really getting actively involved and helping make things better. Um, is that is that a fair statement? Yes, and in my case, um, I was never um, forced or encouraged to sign one. So I, um, and as you know, Chuck, I've been blessed by the family to speak my story. So, um, I've been given, and actually just last week, I wasn't at work. They stopped by, they travel through this area pretty frequently um, just to check in on me and say hi. Uh, so that they they kind of keep tabs. And so that's, they, they have a very special place in my heart. And this is the family who lost a loved one. Again, we won't talk about uh, in the care of someone who, um, who uh, disappeared after uh after the death and and then all, all of a sudden this uh what they call papering the file uh started to happen to make you the bad apple as we go forward and we um are are have nurses and doctors and pts and um, nurse anesthetists and nurse practitioners so many of them uh, would you suggest that it's important for them to learn how to protect themselves ahead of time and know when some of these things are going to start to snowball rather than get caught blindside the way you did yeah i think everything is um documentation um, <laughs> especially in healthcare, we, we told that uh, 
we document, document, document. I would say the same for if if any one of them were to be in my shoes. Um, just document everything. And uh, and if there is a, a, a an error, an adverse event, or something that happened that is untoward. Um, uh, we're now starting to realize it's probably pretty good to be, have representation, legal representation, and maybe not the pit bull, uh, but maybe uh, the gracious collaborator that is just ensuring that the caregiver has their rights uh, protected. We in the Julie Tao case, which we um, articulated in our Discovery Channel film, and then also uh, in further articles. Um, uh, we found that she was uh, very much at a disadvantage having given statements without representation and then, um, you know, things snowballed from there. So, uh, after, after a bad event, it's reasonable to have somebody to, to turn to for legal representation. Yes, definitely. And in my case, I, I had just that she, um, to this day remains gracious. Um, but I think it, it's also important to have somebody. Who clearly knows um, employment law, uh, both sides, um, and is able to kind of um, um, call them out, um, um, as she did on many occasions. So thank you so much for sharing your story and your experience with us. And you and I have had a number of conversations over the years about the joy of being a caregiver and having that sacred trust where families will entrust to you, the care of their loved ones. Um, would you still do it again? And what advice do you have for other caregivers? I think I would do it again. I would be a lot smarter about it though. <laughs> um, uh, maybe have my emotions under a better check, but I definitely would, would never, you know, change what I did and I'll continue to stand up for my patients and I'll continue to be the caregiver. I. I know brings the best care to my patients. Well, listen, God bless you. And I know we've had prayers together over the years and we had to call on that uh, uh, greater and more powerful source sometimes when we're in the deepest valleys and it was tough. And and, and so um, I thank you for being a role model as, as somebody who has faith as well. So thank you again. Yeah, so welcome, Chuck. Thank you. So that leader was uh, terrific and uh, again, remaining and totally anonymous to protect their organization and those that work there. And uh, just amazing that the family of the victim that died uh, continued to have a relationship with this person. So what are the takeaways? Be ready to defend yourself. If you're a caregiver, administrative person, anybody in healthcare or in higher education. Do not make statements after a patient adverse event or a safety issue without legal representation. Get legal representation early. The HR and risk management departments have really evolved into now in the majority representing the organization and not uh, the rights of the individual. It, it, they can't really serve two masters and there's been such a focus on monetization and risk reduction at the expense of the employee that it, uh, and not in all organizations, however, it is common. Uh, don't expect your professional organizations to help you. We've seen this as, as universal. We In 39 years, we have not seen professional organizations stand up 
uh, and help represent the, um, the the folks that are in their membership. It's just because the incentives aren't there and they're uh, ill-equipped, even though they, their heart may be with with the caregiver or the educator, um, they just can't count on them. Maintain an entire set of HR records uh, uh, and performance reviews. Beware of backdated reviews, which is what happened to this individual. Have an attorney review all non-disclosure documents if they are proposed by the organization. So uh, we uh, would uh, like to have uh, uh, Chief uh, Adcox uh, share his uh, thoughts uh, with us regarding core values. He is one of those individuals that really does live the values, and we just have a few short minutes with Bill. Bill, thank you so much for taking time to speak with us today. We know you're off and you're so dedicated to help everyone that you're, you're, you're with us today. First off, as we look at the imposters and fraud and workplace violence, how important is integrity as a core value and really living it in the law enforcement space and as you work with the faculties? Well, thank you very much, Chuck, for having me uh, today. Uh, first off, I think integrity is 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 everything. Uh, if you can't build trust uh, in, in the organization in which you work, not only amongst your own employees, but amongst those that you serve, uh, you're not going to you're not going to make it. And trust trust is an important component of your of your brand, who you are, what you represent, and what you do. And so you're right. Integrity is critical to to every organization. It should be the core value. Um, it should even be unwritten. It's so important. Bill, as we've heard from Ann Rhodes and who has taught us over the years, having co-founded JetBlue and running HR at Southwest, that living the core values is critical. And this integrity issue now probably more than ever is pretty vital in what you do. It's it's very vital in, in what we do, but it's very, very vital in what everybody else does too. Uh, I can tell you that our organization actually has a policy on core values. And so where most people focus on, you know, attendance, conduct, and, and behavior, uh, which we do also, uh, but but we can ask you to, to leave our organization if you don't meet the core values. Uh, and you have to live those core values, you have to believe in those core values, and you have to show those core values every day. And in doing so, you're going to provide the best services uh, possible to the people you serve. But more importantly, you're going to build that level of trust and accountability that's necessary to carry out your mission. Fantastic, Bill. So you often get the great notifications from the federal government regarding certain integrity issues and sent me the information regarding deep fakes. And we're showing the deep fake examples to the audience today. Uh, weren't you shocked to see the impact that they're having? Huge impact. I mean, with the way technology is and social media and, and, and the, the divide in, in our country, particularly even the rest of the world in many ways, um, these deep fakes are, are, are you know, it's, it's, it's a goldmine for the deep fakes. And with all the misinformation, different disinformation and malinformation that's out there, uh, it's tough to stay up with it. It's tough to keep up with it. And it's tough to protect the people uh, of your community is to explain to them. And so what you're seeing across the board is, is all the, the cyber threats, uh, uh, the deep fakes, the cons, the, you know, people being taken advantage of, you know, every day. And it, and it breaks your heart. Uh, it, it, it should upset every one of us. And we should 
do everything in our powers to protect each other and, and to just do the right thing, you know. And it's, it's tough, but you're right. The deep fakes are, are really having a, a field day right now. And then, Bill, finally, coming back to the fundamentals of the MedTech program that you have been so instrumental in Dr. Boats and helping drive, uh, we're thrilled to be seeing lives being saved by just the fundamentals and uh, perhaps just share the fact that, uh, you know, that you're doing that at Anderson, world's uh, leading cancer center, but your law enforcement guys are constantly working on the fundamentals to save lives. Right. Uh, MedTech is, is, is probably the, the, the one single thing that any organization can do to truly and absolutely save lives. I mean, it confronts the eight, uh, the eight actual documented causes of death. It gives, it gives every, every employee, every person the tools, the skills necessary to, to save a life. And then, of course, the program also helps people get equipped and know what to have. You know, the things that the organizations can, can have in place things that individuals can take with them and have with them, even when they're traveling or, or going to and from work or, or going even going to the grocery store. But, uh, but that skill and knowledge that, that can be easily easily uh, obtained through the MedTech program is, is amazing. I mean, just to think about just in the short time in which the program was kicked off and the lives that were saved, it's unbelievable. Well, Bill, we want to thank you very much for being such a pathfinder in threat safety science. And uh, uh, thank you so much for taking a time, time today while you were off. Well, I appreciate it. And you have a good day. Thank you, Bill. We're so pleased to have uh, Bill step in with us uh, with this uh, uh, day off. Uh, I'd like to uh, reintroduce to our regular audience, John Nance. And for those of you that are new to us, John Nance is uh, an amazing, amazing individual. He uh, is uh, the, a former captain with uh, Alaskan Airlines. He was a military officer flying the large uh, aircraft. Uh, he has a, a, a JD, he's an attorney. He was one of the fundamental leaders in patient safety and quality with the crossover from aviation safety. He's a best-selling author. And uh, John is also at the ABC Good Morning America safety expert. So we frequently see uh, him uh, on, on uh, television. And we're going to share uh, an, a, a, a rather long excerpt from uh, our work with him on visible and invisible fraud factors. Uh, and uh, it's del a delight to be uh, the, a partner with John Nance in the work that we uh, are undertaking with him. So, John, with the evolution of uh, the whole medical industrial complex into these very large businesses that own uh, hospitals, peer review, which was really established to focus on and improve patient safety and quality, can be used as a weapon to get a competitor out or retaliate against a whistleblower. What, what, what's your advice to boards and, and leadership teams regarding sham peer review and the fact that this can be weaponized? The fact that it can be weaponized, we've already seen. And of course, the, the, the problem is that there is a huge disparity of, uh, of force and effect of the money involved and the power involved when an organization wants to say something bad about somebody to get them out of there 
uh, it, it's an uphill climb at best to try to get that fixed. It's up to the board of directors to say that will not happen here. And we, we will deal most harshly with anybody who allows it to happen, whether they're a member of the C-suite or whether they're further down in the organization. Uh, what, what a hospital says about somebody should not be written on the basis of fear that they might be sued, but it also must not be written on the basis that we can say anything we want to. It needs to be honest. We need to be able to trust it. And human nature dictates that if we just leave this alone and say, well, that's your responsibility, we're not going to get a better system than we have right now, which is no system at all. Most boards do not really understand the depth of this problem and the depth of the problem's potential, because it also includes uh, falsifying on the part of the hospital anything that they don't particularly like or are basically putting something in somebody's file, an HR file, to get rid of them. That should be criminal. And I am very, very firm on this. There should be criminal penalties for this and, and not little ones at all, because what you're doing is ruining somebody's reputation uh, and in many cases ruining lives. Boards are responsible for this. The buck stops there. So, John, you and I are familiar with cases where organizations, which is so common now, have weaponized the HR department and, in fact, done what the industry talks about as papering the file. Someone has spoken up, they want to get, get, get rid of someone, they start to confabulate stories about that individual and paper their HR file with false uh, statements about their performance, reviews, and other things. Shouldn't there be more of a consequence there? Uh, local prosecutors would have no idea what happens in the HR department of a hospital, and yet we know it goes on, and we know studies have shown that our workers in hospitals, two-thirds, are afraid to speak up because they're afraid something's going in their HR file, and they're probably right. There are two problems with HR these days. First of all, uh, too often they're trying to run the hospital, and I'm not talking about dishonestly. They, they really are trying to protect so much uh, that the C-suite uh, kind of steps aside and says, okay, you tell us what to do. Uh, attorneys will do the same thing, I can tell you, because you don't want to be sued for malpractice, but uh, you've got to be told to sit down, you know, tell, give us your opinion, and then sit down uh, every now and then. But here's the worst part, is when HR has developed such hegemony over their particular bailiwick in that hospital or that system, that they now have become all powerful and somebody is allowed to develop a methodology of cheating by papering over somebody's file, by adding something, by keeping something out. That is not gonna be stopped by just threatening their job. We have to have a system, and I think this has to involve new law too, in which being found guilty of that for an HR director or anybody in a position of authority is an immediate permanent dismissal from all of healthcare permanently. Secondly, there need to be criminal penalties for violating the integrity of somebody's file by putting things in there that are not proven or not true or that they knowingly uh, put in there uh, because they're not true. This, uh, this takes a lot of nuance and it takes a lot of discussion, but right now, HR departments are allowed to run almost autonomously, and, and if they decide that they're going to be the ones who decide whether to get rid of somebody or not by paper into the file, uh, they can do so with almost no interference whatsoever. It's not just a board saying that we're not going to do this. We've got to make sure that people have the knowledge that this is going to be a very, very dangerous thing to engage in, and you don't want to be in that position, especially not if you want a whole career in HR. When we think about whistleblowers, it's uh, our, our, our scandal-hungry public loves a whistleblower story, 
but they might not like to be near the whistle. And we know our whistleblowers are really um, trying to do something, those that are legitimate, and we'll talk in a moment about the illegitimate whistleblowers, but a legitimate whistleblower really has an uphill battle today, don't they, John? I mean, they've got to get an attorney, they get very little protection, and uh, in, in the end, they wonder, well, was this worth it to try to improve quality and safety? It would be very difficult. I think for me as a lawyer, it would be very difficult for anybody to sit down with someone who has a whistle to blow and say, don't worry, we've got laws that are really going to protect you. Uh, we've got a situation here that's going to protect you. The board said they'll protect you, whatever it might be, because we know that that's not the case. We know that we have laws that we put in place, a federal and state, and, uh, and they were well-intentioned, and we know they don't work very well. And we also know that if we go too far in the opposite direction of protecting a whistleblower at any time and any place, then somebody can get up and just make something up and, and do so almost with impunity. I could point you to several state laws around the country that maybe not in that particular area, but that have had that effect. In other words, the pendulum was allowed to swing too far. This is a very thorny issue. But it's also a very important one because we must hear what people have to say when they have the bravery to step up to the step up to bat, so to speak, and say, we have a problem over here. We must prevent the type of retaliation that ruins lives over years and, and sometimes just absolutely bankrupt somebody who made the mistake of speaking up. We've all seen it and we're going to see more of it, but we've got to do something more than just sit back and say, well, we've got a few statutes in place. So do you agree with me that we that our best organizations really need to provide a structure that's well funded to protect those people that are trying to improve quality? Our best organizations uh, have to take it as a core value that they will not and they must not allow that sort of thing. In other words, uh, tromping somebody who honestly blows a whistle, whether they're right or wrong, about something they think needs to be repaired or fixed or stopped in their institution. This is a this is a sacred trust, and we are violating this uh, because again, it's a it's a human nature bell curve thing to a certain extent. It's always going to be there. It's very difficult for people who are trying to protect a major hospital, for instance, to hear things they don't want to hear that the public might hear. But that is their responsibility, <laughs> and I don't know precisely how many years it's going to take us to finally come to the recognition that many of these federal laws that we have do not work because they are in theory only. They really do not operate uh, to protect somebody. And on the state basis, where most of the laws that we need to protect uh, uh, hospital people and doctors and nurses and anybody working associated with healthcare, these need overhaul, if, if not uh, basic creation. Um, it's extremely important to understand it's not just a matter of blind courage and we want to pat them on the back and say that's a good idea when somebody uh, steps up to the plate and says I, I know I may be in trouble with my supervisor for saying this but we've got a problem. This is sacred trust for boards especially to make sure that these people are protected and yes it's going to be irritating because many times people who are going to report something like this may not have the greatest skills of communication and they may not be the most liked person around but if they are sincerely trying to bring to the administration's attention and to the board's attention, something that really does impact patient safety, impacts the integrity of the hospital, they must be protected. And across the board now, there's just much too easy, and we see it quite often, of a nurse, for instance, uh, bringing up something that has 
well, it, it makes the uh, senior administration uncomfortable and they really want the public to hear about it. So they just make it very clear that if she or he continues this, they're not going to have a job or at least they're not going to be on kind of a report situation. And there are all sorts of subtle effects that don't rise to the level of a state law being able to whack down that kind of suppression. But it is dastardly and it, it suppresses the information for everybody else because and I'll tell you, everybody else in the institution knows that that happened and they know the message very clearly. Speak up at your peril. We have to change that. John, it's been an incredible 20 month period and we know one of the areas that is has been very concerning to you and I is when administrative leaders of healthcare institutions counterattack or retaliate against our caregivers when they're only expressing their concerns about safety, safety of their patients or safety of themselves in, in reference to personal protective equipment. This is a problem that really is based on human nature, but it's one that we have to pay strict attention to because the damage done when somebody retaliates against a professional for uh, speaking up and for trying to improve things, even if they're wrong, when they are retaliated against, there's a lot of additional people who know that, who realize it, and who shut up exactly at the time that we need to know things. So the uh, the insidious nature of the, the circle of uh, ripples, if you will, in the pond for somebody just turning around and snapping at somebody is shut up when I want your opinion, I'll ask for it, all the way up to formal retaliation, which is simply... Uh, unfortunately running rampant in too many instances because there's nothing to stop it. Many times you've got good people who think that this is what they need to do to protect the institution, but they're doing nothing but damaging the institution and damaging the capability that we have and are trying to improve to keep our patients safe. John, we've got some terrific medical centers and academic organizations, but it's fascinating to see some of the leaders, chairman of departments, people that whose brand is associated with the brand of the organization state in articles that they write, my organization has approved the conflict of interest issues pertaining to this article. And yet there's nobody there that really knows what product might be, uh, might be mentioned or might be impacted by the article. And they hide behind this and they care and they collect as pearls on a necklace, uh, equity in companies. Uh, that do not even have to be reported if they don't get cash. And so at this point in time, there are many academics that are associate their, them, themselves, their brand with the brand of the organization. And with that get out of jail free card, no one knows reading the article, how many pieces of equity and, and, and uh, compensation that they have from a plethora of companies across, uh, across, uh, across the nation. Um, is this right? Like anything else in human life, when we try to regulate uh, human nature and we try to regulate honesty, we end up uh, very often finding that it's much, far, far more difficult than we thought. That's certainly true with respect to conflict of interest, identification in articles, publications, and, and things of this nature. I, I remember very clearly on a governmental level uh, decades ago when we came up with the, uh, the laws to protect the amount of information that you gave to the federal government and, uh, and the social security numbers and things like that. Well, it became the tail that wagged the dog. And now we've created far more disruption by all those rules and regulations. And I think we solve problems. That's my personal opinion. But here again, we, we have a situation in which there is a need uh, to go far beyond where we are 
if people aren't going to behave themselves just because that's the matter of their integrity, and I don't want to say that the general level of integrity has declined, but you can read that for yourself, uh, I think we're going to have to do it for them to a certain extent. And the the degree right now, partially because of the internet, and partially because I think uh, civilization has moved in an unfortunate direction in terms of saying anything people want to say, the, uh, as you say, the string of pearls uh, that people put around their necks with identification of this or that particular company, organization, or product uh, has got to be subjected to far more scrutiny than it has been in the past. But that scrutiny itself has to be honest. Otherwise, we get a yin and a yang back and forth uh, of dishonesty. So is it fair to say that the get out of jail free card to say my organization's reviewed my conflicts of interest is not adequate? I'm certainly aware that there is uh, a propensity for wanting to say, well, this organization blessed what we're doing. Uh, they have reviewed it and uh, there's no problem. In other words, a get out of jail free card. But we've got to scrutinize these things on the basis of what do they really mean and what assurance do they really give us? Uh, and in, in the case of uh, uh, trying to say that we've got all the potential conflicts of interest under control, it's as useless as, as just checking this off in a paper that you have to do five, six, seven times uh, and saying, no, there are no conflicts of interest. That's my personal opinion. That's my degree of honesty. But what does that card mean? What, what does that assurance mean that we have, we've uh, checked it out and uh, there's no conflict of interest? I think we need to go far beyond that. Uh, you know, to a certain extent, it has been suggested that uh, it, this is such a problem, not just in medicine, that uh, we should force all members of Congress, senators and congressmen, to wear jumpsuits with the patches of their major donors on there, all the companies <laughs> who contributed. And I think that's really a very fine um, uh, idea because we would be staggered at, at the size of the patch uh, were basically tuned to the size of the contribution. I think we would be absolutely staggered to watch our so-called lawmakers in action and why they're going in certain directions. So, John, so many of us participate in nonprofit organizations that have great core values, a great mission and vision, and yet um, we believe that they're doing great work. And so many of us uh, wear these badges of uh, our board uh, participation on our tunic of community service, and yet really don't pay attention to how they're run and how uh, they are treating their employees and how they're treating uh, uh, the community. What's your advice to those board members of those organizations uh, uh, that need to kind of focus on, are we living up to the commitment? Are we being honorable? Are we, do we have the character that we believe that we're, uh, that, that we're projecting to the community? Well, just a pretty simple statement. Uh, if you have a good moral compass, or at least you believe you do, look yourself in the mirror and ask, if I could make public virtually everything that we discuss in meetings, how we discuss it and what we're doing, if the public could understand there's absolutely nothing that is proprietary or hidden, uh, would I be proud of this organization or would I be defending us against a lot of excoriating statements? Uh, you know the answer to that. If you're on one of these boards, you know what's going on. But it's up to you to do something about it if it's not where it should be. And just quitting the board quietly slinking away is not good enough if this is a public trust. So, John, I often think of our hospitals or our nonprofit organizations as uh, uh, as, as being kind of in the back seat of the of the vehicle, and the drivers might be the chief operating officer, or the CEO, uh, and 
We can have accidents, unintentional, but we can have accidents. But when we have a hit and run accident in a patient safety crisis, uh, and then we hire malpractice attorneys to defend it, uh, there's still somebody's name on that registration in the glove box, isn't there? Isn't it? it it's critical that we start to think about our commitment to the community and not be passive board members, but maybe get in the front seat and watch what's going on. As a lawyer, I think I can see all sides of the issue of uh, aggressive defense uh, of a hospital against a patient safety complaint that has gotten to the point of a wrongful death suit or something like that. But, you know, you got to look back at what the charter of the hospital is. It's to serve humanity. And especially when it involves, and I'm not going to single anybody out here, but especially when it involves a relig relig pardon me, religious organization or chain of hospitals, and they have the unmitigated temerity to turn things over to a lawyer or a law firm who is by their very nature going to fight a hard fight to, to do what they've been hired to do. And they're not taking into account the humanity of this and the effect of, of their decision and the the uh, deprivations that this causes to, uh, to uh, survivors, for instance, not to mention the financial aspect, that I just have no respect for this. Uh, yes, you hire an attorney. We hopefully a good attorney or a good law firm is going to do his or her best. They are not the ones to be making the decisions on what the moral compass says should be done, but the hospital board is, and the boards above them when it's a system are, and they're the ones that need to come in and say, we're going to find a way to settle this as, as rapidly as we can. Now, of course, if there are people out there who want to profit inordinately, yeah, we've pretty much shut them down in a lot of states, like my home jurisdiction of Texas, where it's so dangerous to practice uh, malpractice, for medical malpractice as a lawyer, because the legislature has put so many time bombs in to make sure that uh, that only a few firms would ever dare, and to make sure that only massive cases are ever going to get taken. But aside from that, which is wrong, uh, we've got a problem nationwide here, which is that we turn the law firms loose, and then we've got boards and leaders of hospitals and systems who say, hey, we're just doing what we have to do fiduciarily. No, you're not. No, you're not. You need to revisit. John, during this time, we know that we have had our caregivers stretched way beyond their capacity. Uh, we know that, uh, uh, that they have burnout, and we know that it is a very trying time. And when they speak up regarding staffing issues, um, and an organization then states that these things are not factual or true, that's really fraud in my book. What's your take on that with organizations that are trying to maximize profitability and not responding to the critical need of coverage? Hospitals or any other medical institution, uh, large or small, that, uh, that thinks that somehow they can maximize their profits, stabilize the situation, even without COVID, uh, by keeping everybody quiet in terms of anything that might go wrong, or at least making sure that they control the narrative, uh, are not only making a lousy mistake, they're making a dangerous one that really is, is fraudulent in, in the final analysis. The reason that I use the word fraud is because you're, you're looking at at public trust and the public can't trust an organization that is suppressing a lot of knowledge 
whether it was good or bad. You've got to have a, a determination on the part of not only the C-suite and the board, uh, but everybody involved in any sort of supervisory role to know that you're going to get human nature and, and you're going to get people who are going to go overboard. They don't necessarily know how to do this right, but they're going to be reporting things. And sometimes you do want to just smack them around and say, please, you're, you know, you're hurting our reputation. But it is far more important for them to go ahead and speak their truth and for us to listen to it and for those leaders to listen to it and do something about it than it is to suppress. Because suppression always leads to almost the pledge of omerta. In other words, don't say anything at all. And that is where we don't want to go. John, shifting gears for a moment, our dear friend Clayton Christensen was the subject of, of, uh, of uh, uh, defamation in major articles that then just got replicated through the, uh, through the scandal-seeking internet. I've had it happen to me. Others have had it happen to them. Uh, what about the, this issue of professionals in our field in healthcare uh, uh, jumping in and academic mobbing uh, in order to get clickstream and clickbait onto their websites. You know, when we allowed the internet to grow as it did so rapidly without uh, coming to a conclusion of who should be liable for content that is simply incorrect and, and purposefully fraudulent, we opened the door to a lot, a lot of abuse. And on top of that abuse has become the situation where professionals will attack each other on a swarm, either for uh, personal aggrandizement, uh, professional aggrandizement, or more dastardly for purposes of getting people, as you say, to come to their website and to clickbait uh, all the way to profitability. Uh, the It should not be just the end person. In other words, the one who actually put that into operation, who is liable. It should be the carriers themselves. And, and whether we're talking about uh, one of the major companies that provides um, the uh, transmissibility through the internet, or whether we're talking about some uh, some other organization that uses it, everyone involved in libel and slander should be suable directly with recovery for attorney fees on the things that they do that they are allowing to happen, especially when they know or they have reason to know that these things are occurring. This is especially dastardly within the professional ranks in medicine because uh, we, we need to be able to trust the papers that are published and the journals that are put out there. And when there is no consequence for lying yourself silly or attacking and trying to uh, eviscerate some uh, somebody who's got a counter opinion medically, uh, we've got garbage coming out. As a matter of fact, in too many cases, that's one of the problems right now. How can our practitioners know what the best practices are when there is such a wide variety and no one is really watching whether or not this is an honest publication versus a dishonest one? You, you find this now going in so many different directions, but the personal attacks that go on right now and that uh, basically there's there's no way of stopping at present have to be addressed. So John, is the, is the only recourse uh, uh, civil lawsuits and uh, potentially you and I have discussed the issue of civil RICO and some of these other mechanisms. Um, we we want to live in a free society, but the, the, the citizen journalist who can uh, throw firebombs uh, at someone's amygdala, the threat center of the brain, just to get that clickbait and get that uh, get that 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 viral transmission. Is there is there any other recourse, or what do you think? 
I think we can evolve the laws in this. Uh, as an attorney, I, I re recognize readily that uh, when we try to put many different uh, laws in place to balance or counterbalance, we often make some great mistakes. By the same token, there's not enough teeth in the law. Uh, you're, you're left uh, basically to gather the money, if you possibly can, to sue somebody for professional libel. And uh, it's not going to be easy, and it's not going to really frighten the other side because they know in most cases, it's very difficult to get a, uh, a judgment against them, let alone uh, to get this in a criminal mode. I think there should be something uh, labeled criminal libel of one sort or another. And I think we really need to play this all out on the table and ask the question of how much are we willing to allow people to get by with before we put the onus on them? And in what way can we make this so dastardly in terms of the, the consequences for them uh, that they're not going to try it. Right now, there are a lot of people who feel that they've got total immunity as a blogger, uh, as somebody writing a journal that came out of nowhere to say anything they want about anybody and to say, well, I, I tell you that I believe it's correct and no one can come after them really without spending half their fortune or maybe everything they have and then possibly losing the lawsuit or winning it but getting no attorney's fees back when the attorney's fees can amount to half a million dollars. Uh, this is an evolving area of the law. The law is always behind. Uh, when it comes to adapting to new things in society, but this is something that we really need to be talking about and we need to do something about. So with uh, John Nance, uh, we are going to uh, bifurcate uh, some of the content from John into our next program, which will be uh, regarding fraud and take us into the area of payment and conflicts of interest. So um, because we all, will always try to finish on the half hour, we have three minutes. Uh, uh, for those of you that are on the podcast, we uh, provide continuing education, medical education, and risk education information. I'll just be able to tease today uh, our next topics. We are going to address the conflict of interest issues that are absolutely uh, critical in our higher education and our medical centers in our next program. Uh, there are a number of stories that we've been following regarding these issues, which we'll take through which we will take a deep dive. We did we do want to uh, make sure that we cover in our next program financial fraud, and there's an enormous problem uh, bankruptcies uh, of our. Americans are almost uh, totally involved. The personal bankruptcies are tied to medical debt. So insurer fraud, hospital fraud, cybercrime, all of these are really a critical issue. Um, two books we highly recommend we will cover. However, in the news uh, just uh, today, uh, Mark Cuban and uh, an is noted and an article in JAMA regarding comparison of hospital online prices. So we'll just uh, recommend that you take a look at these articles. We'll cover them in a deeper dive as we go forward and cover the two books that we highly recommend, The Price We Pay and Never Pay the First Bill. Uh, these are these are critical. And, and these uh, are by Marty, uh, Marty uh, McCary and uh, Marshall Allen regarding this issue of, um, uh, of insurance, medical insurance, 
bills and hospital bills. And really, uh, when we talk about imposters, we have providers that uh, say they're there to take care of us, but financial motives are having an enormous impact. We also want to uh, address in a deeper way the false narratives and the weaponizing of information and the information disorder uh, uh, concept, which was really pioneered by a group that was at Harvard who have moved to Brown University and have addressed this issue uh, of misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation, where misinformation is false, um, but I'm not intended to harm where uh, the malinformation may be correct. there Someone may dox you, identify where you live or identify personal information with an intent to harm, maybe accurate information, but it may put you and your family at risk. And we're seeing that in the political sphere right now. And disinformation, the most powerful, which is really six times as sticky in social media, thus six times as lucrative for the social media companies if they uh, spread uh, very outrageous, we call it out outrage porn, the most outrageous statements, uh, even though they and uh, that are, are factually incorrect, but outrageous, uh, actually generate the greatest number of um, the greatest, uh, the greatest numbers for uh, advertising. So, uh, and we recommend the three, three documentaries, and we'll cover three more in our next program. And those are Merchants of Doubt, Social Media, and The Great Hack. We highly recommend those. Um, and we're going to cover for families what families can do uh, with reference to the to the five R's, uh, how we can with our families um, and with our as caregivers and those that are educators now that we've expanded to universities uh, address readiness, response, rescue, recovery, and resilience as we head um, uh, into this issue of fraud and protecting our families. I'd like to thank our, our uh, speakers uh, today, uh, especially our anonymous heroic speaker who spoke with us uh, uh, today. And um, uh, we are so blessed to have such great leaders. And we'll close with the voice of the patient. And we look forward to having you next month when we'll do, uh, when we'll address um, the imposters uh, part three and address uh, uh, this uh, fraudulent, uh, the fraudulent issues that are absolutely critical. And we'll ask uh, Jennifer uh, Dingman to close uh, today for us. Well, that was a great webinar. I learned so much. Thank you so much to our speakers for all of the information and the advice. Well taken. I want to thank everyone for being here today. And I urge you again to please share the recordings with your colleagues, families, and friends. We'll see you next month. And God bless everyone. Thank you, Jennifer, uh, such a steadfast supporter of safety and quality as we go forward. As we, as we close uh, most of our MedTAC programs and these programs with our uh, global research test bed, uh, we need to fight the good fight, we need to finish the race, and we need to keep the faith. Um, everyone is a patient and everyone can be a caregiver. And we thank all of you for attending today and we look forward to seeing you next month. Thank you.